Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg, Cooper Wingert. Cooper Wingert, author of The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg. How long have you been a Civil War fan? Um, pretty much ever since I've been, I went down to Gettysburg on a fifth grade field trip. What interested you in it? I think a lot of it was just you can say that I, you can stand you know, right here where the action was and you can see the monuments, you can re read the stories of these men. You can't, you, know, you can't go over to Normandy pretty easily. Um, you know, it's something that's nearby. It's something that is accessible. How often do you go there now? I try to get there as often as possible. A lot of times with research, it gets relegated to you know, every once in a, every few months. What more can you learn going there multiple times? You can read all you want about Gettysburg, but you really can't comment, I think, effectively on what actually happened at a battle until you see the landscape. You can see what the men who were fighting there saw, and that's what you can see at Gettysburg most of the time. Do you have a favorite spot at Gettysburg? Well, the whole, the whole, whole battlefield is my favorite spot, but um, I think in particular there's, there's a, the first day's field and especially the area with the peace light, just such, you know, it, it looks so, so close to what it did back in 1863. It's really, uh, really, really, neat, really a neat area in general. Now, your book, uh, The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg, can you talk about what it's about? Essentially, The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg is part of the Gettysburg Campaign, which is often relegated to a footnote. Uh, it essentially will cover... At, my book essentially covers everywhere from Shippensburg to Harrisburg as far as the actions during the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, as I started studying Gettysburg, I started learning more about what happened here. And I've lived in Enola right opposite Harrisburg all my life. And that's really what kind of sparked a lot more interest for me is that what happened, you know, um, 10 minutes from my house. What time period takes place in your book? Essentially from the beginning of June 1863 to July 4th, 1863. And that's basically covering the beginning of the Confederate, uh, Confederate invasion, the Union response, how Harrisburg is uh, constructing fortifications to defend itself, um, and, and, su and such. What was going on in the war in 1863, in June of 1863, just the big picture? To give you an idea, Robert E. Lee had just won two stunning victories. In 1862, in the December 1862, he had beaten back Ambrose Burnside's Union Army at the Battle of Fredericksburg. And in May 1863, he's outnumbered nearly three to one, and he, he was one of his greatest victories of the war uh, when he wins the Battle of Chancellorsville. So that is what the momentum he is riding on as he uh, comes north into Pennsylvania in June 1863. Overall, it's a, it looks dismal for the Union, but Lee does know that um, in reality, he is losing the war. He, he doesn't have enough time to as time continues, he run, the South is running out of food, they're running out of supplies, the North is really like a machine, and there's, the North has, um, 
well, has life. If this is a war of uh, time, the North will win. And that is what Lee knows, and that's why he knows he needs to press, press the issue. So what did he hope to accomplish by invading Pennsylvania? Well, I think Pennsylvania, invading Pennsylvania, invading the North, could do a number of things. First of all, it relieves Virginia. Virginia is war-torn at this point. It's, I guess, about two years of war uh, by this point, and the Virginia farms are, are just, uh, they've been feeding two armies, whether they like it or not, for two years. It, it takes a toll. So he's relieving Virginia farmers. He can feed his army at the expense of Pennsylvania and Maryland farmers. And I think most importantly and politically, he can threaten northern cities, and he can embarrass Abraham Lincoln politically. And I think at this point, Lee is kind of drawing to the conclusion his only way to win the war uh, is more through a political, uh, um, the, the Union's will. Will the Union's will to win the war stop? And if so, they can sign a peace treaty and the South can become independent. How many soldiers did he bring with him? Uh, the accounts vary, roughly 70, 75,000. Um, and you have a Union Army which composes roughly 90, 93,000. Um, of course, the Union Army, however, will let Lee get a head start. They don't start till nearly a week after, uh, start heading northward till nearly a week after Lee begins. Where was the Union Army at the time? Essentially, when, they, when this all begins, they're pretty much poised opposite each other. Uh, they've been locked in the stalemate position for nearly six months at this time, uh, opposite Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, of course, the, Rap the uh, Rappahannock River right, uh, separates them. So Lee will move west from there and north uh, down the Shenandoah Valley. And he'll cross, of course, across the Potomac into Maryland and into Pennsylvania. Did each army know where the other army was at all the time? No, uh, they, they, would they would like to, but um, it was more of something that a lot of it was uh, negligence on the Union part of letting Lee get there. They probably should have been a little uh, more wary of what his movements were. Uh, but by the time he gets into the valley, they are well aware of what his position and pretty sure what his intentions are. Yeah, what valley? Uh, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Where does that run in comparison to Pennsylvania? Essentially, it's kind of like a southern extension of the Cumberland Valley, the Great Valley. Uh, in, in Virginia. Of course, Winchester's there. Uh, that was a major city. And of course, the Second Battle of Winchester during the Gettysburg Campaign was key as Lee's army is moving up. They defeat a Union garrison, capture them largely as they are uh, continuing up northward into Pennsylvania. So they were opposite Fredericksburg, and Lee's army went, and the Union army wasn't sure where they were going? Well, I think the Union army, they had a commander who was uh, he was one of those, uh, he was a commander who was very intent on taking Richmond. And it was his idea as Lee would go there, he would take Richmond. Uh, but Abraham Lincoln wasn't having any of it. He wanted an army between Lee and Washington at all times. Uh, so that's kind of how that grew. And eventually, the Union Army will follow in pursuit. What was involved in the logistics kind of in 1863 of moving an army of 75,000 men? Well, a lot. Uh, there's, supply there's supply wagons, there's trying to get everybody organized. It's a lot, and it's, it was painstaking work. How do you feed them? A lot of it's living off the country. But you know, there's, um, you know, of course, they have rations and supply wagons, I said. But a lot of it really is feeding off the country. And that's why Virginia, you know, Lee realized they're just running so low on, um, on food. They, they, don't, they can't continue the war in Virginia, even though they're winning battles they're by another probably by 1864, if they continued the war in Virginia, they're probably not going to have much food left at all.
But you say in your book when the Confederate Army moved into Pennsylvania, they, they didn't just take things, they didn't just loot. They did not, and it was more of something where they would requisition. I think a lot of people get the idea that Confederates came up here, they you know, knocked open doors, and they ransacked places. The Union, the union militia did that, but we'll get into that later. Um, but what the Confederates did do is they you know, peacefully placed requisitions. Often they would go into farm fields and take crops. They were not um, you know, crazed uh, barbarians, and, and some, some people somehow get that view, but they, they were, you know, by most accounts, most Confederates were civil and polite, but they, you know, sometimes they paid in Confederate currency, but that wasn't worth, worth much up here. Uh, how'd they dress? What kind of uh, backpack did they have? What kind of guns did they have? By most accounts, it was pretty varied. You know, there's some accounts talking about how there were, uh, they looked very similar to Pennsylvania farmers other than their muskets. And a lot of it was, there was really no uniformed um, clothing for the Confederate Army. It was very, a lot of it was just try to coordinate with butternut gray uh, in, in that area of color. Who were Lee's top people? Lee had three corps. He had, of course, um, first corps under Lieutenant, Lieutenant General James Longstreet. They get about us, they did not get uh, past Chambersburg as far as uh, getting north. They will get to Gettysburg, of course. Uh, his second corps is the one that penetrates the furthest. That is Lieutenant General Richard S. Ewell. He is filling in uh, for Stonewall Jackson after Jackson was mortally wounded at Chancellorsville. And Ewell's corps will be basically the, um, the vanguard of Lee's army as they enter Pennsylvania. His third corps is Lieutenant, is Lieutenant General A.P. Hill's corps, the third corps. And that will not, uh, that will, they will also be in the Chambersburg, Gettysburg area during the entire campaign. Um, but Ewell's Corps essentially divides upon, reach in, upon entering Pennsylvania. One division under Jubal Early goes east through, through Gettysburg, York, and Wrightsville, of course the burning of the Wrightsville Bridge. He, he meanwhile takes his other two divisions, Allegheny Johnson's and Robert Rhodes, and continues north and eventually going through Shippensburg and into Carlisle, and that's where they enter my book. Where, where did they cross over the border into uh, Pennsylvania? Uh, I was near Greencastle, so it was in that in that area. Was there any resistance? There were. Pennsylvania was at the point um, before the war. Pennsylvania had 20 divisions of militia on paper, but in reality, most of those men had enlisted early on in the war. So Pennsylvania really doesn't have an organized militia as of 1863. So they hastily raise it, and they basically have companies from, there's a Pottstown company, there's companies from Philadelphia, all over. And essentially, for the most part, what happens is these companies uh, come to Harrisburg Rye Railroad, they go to Camp Curtin, they are uh, mustered in, randomly put in a regiment, and s drilled for about an hour or two, and sent to the front to face hardened Confederate veterans. So that is pretty much what is happening with Pennsylvania militia, um, as far as resistance. Uh, you, you, there are militia from New York and New Jersey. New York is the uh, largest contributor. They will send, they have, one thing New York has on their side is they have pre-war organizations. They already have organizations intact. However, most of these organizations have never seen combat. And most, what, what experience they do have is pretty much parading down the streets of New York City on the 4th of July. So these are, you know, these are more military units for show. Uh, they will arrive in Harrisburg and pretty much be one of the, the one of the, the main uh, contributors to the defense of Harrisburg. Did did the uh, Union think that Harrisburg was the target? 
they, at first it seemed like everybody uh, believed Pittsburgh was the target. And it kind of slowly focused, uh, it was Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, some people even thought the Confederates were going to try to take Philadelphia. Um, Baltimore was also mentioned as a target. There were a number of New York National Guard regiments sent to Baltimore. So it was really, it was not, I don't, know, I don't think Lee had one set target as a city. He was, his target was a lot of political, but certainly Harrisburg could have helped. And as he wrote to Lieutenant General Ewell, if Harrisburg comes within your means, capture it. That wasn't the primary target. It was one of the, uh, his, his goals coming into Pennsylvania. His, his primary target was taking the, war from, taking the war from Virginia. That was his primary target. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the city of Harrisburg like in 1863? Well, the city of Harrisburg had a roughly 14,000 uh, population. And it was, uh, as, I, as I mentioned Camp Curtin earlier, it was really turning into a, war, a city defined by war. There were, over the course of the entire war, roughly 300,000 men passed through Camp Curtin. And almost continually there was some military presence in Harrisburg and it was certainly being uh, defined by that. You have a, the railroad depot in Harrisburg, constantly troops are arriving or going out. So in reality there was, um, it really was um, a constantly um, busy city. Did it have much industry? Uh, it certainly did. It was kind of one of the up-and-coming cities. It was really grow It was growing pretty fast. Um, not to mention any in particular, but there were um, a lot of there were a lot of hospitals throughout there. As I said, mentioned Camp Curtin. Um, the railroad industry was huge. Of course, there were a lot of jobs in the railroad industry they had there. Was it the state capital at the time? Yes, it was. It had been the state capital since 1812. Uh, did the state government continue to meet during this? Yes, they did. Um, they, they met in the, uh, of course, the old Capitol building. But uh, there were also a lot of political groups during the invasion as the Confederates are knocking on the door of Harrisburg. The Democratic Party is holding its convention. Uh, and as uh, many militiamen are uh, camping out on the Capitol, Capitol lawn, they talk about hearing the Copperhead Convention, as it was commonly known. So yes, there were a lot of political activities in Harrisburg. Were there many Southern sympathizers in Pennsylvania, in that part of Pennsylvania where the Lee's army was coming through? In South Central Pennsylvania, there were a number of Southern sympathizers. They were, of course, known as Copperheads, uh, Peace Democrats a lot of times. And there, there were a number of them. And it seems like overall, if you read the accounts as I talk about in my book, they were treated fairly um, not that well by the southern troops as they enter Pennsylvania. The southern troops don't have too much of respect for people who are betraying their country. Um, there are particular instances, one particular instance where uh, near Carlisle, one, of the, one Confederate brigadier is approached by several men uh, talking about how earnest they are in the uh, to the southern cause. And General Jenkins says, well, if you uh, support the southern cause so much, why don't you join my ranks? Um, so th there's a lot of the Confederates really did not respect um, people who they, they considered traitors. So just to give a little perspective, the, the Confederate Army was coming up what essentially now is Interstate 81? Uh, no, what is, they're coming up mainly the, old, the Valley Turnpike, which is now Route 11. Um, mm -hmm. That's pretty much they're coming up through Chambersburg, Shippensburg, and uh, Carlisle. Did they have to fight their way up? Chambersburg and, and Shippensburg, or was it kind of clear sailing? Uh, that's an interesting question because it was, in a way, it was free sailing. They were mainly militia, and the Confederates kind of considered them a joke. The militia was, as I told you, the, the Confederates pretty much considered the militia a joke. 
Occasionally there were a couple squads of Union cavalry which actually were somewhat experienced, but you're talking about 100, 200 Union cavalry and 10,000, 10, 15,000 Confederates. It's more of just a delaying action is what they're fighting and just trying to you know, delay and harass. It's pretty much what the Union cavalry and Union, the Union outposts in and around Chambersburg, Shippensburg are doing as they approach. When did the Union Army decide, oh, you know, they're heading for Harrisburg, we better build up some defenses? Well, what happens is General Darius Couch, and he is a former Corps commander in the Army of Potomac, the main Union Army in Virginia, and he will come to Harrisburg. He's assigned to command of the Department of Susquehanna, and that is uh, created about uh, middle of June, and he'll be assigned to command of that, and he's pretty much in charge of defending Harrisburg and everything east of Johnstown. So he will begin, I believe it's June 15th, when they begin work on the entrenchments opposite Harrisburg. He realizes that that's, they're going to need to build something, and he better get started on it soon. What did they build? Uh, they built Fort Washington, which is on Bridgeport, what was, what was then called Bridgeport Heights. Now it's called Washington Heights. Uh, it's right opposite Harrisburg. You can see it from uh, City Island and Harrisburg. And Fort Washington was mainly erected by civilian, uh, uh, civilian engineers, a few volunteers from Harrisburg. Uh, most of them, most of the Harrisburgers left because the work hurt their hands. Yeah, you say Harrisburgers were no help at all, and the locals were no help at all in building the force. Not really. They were, there were less than 300 by most accounts that worked, uh, worked in the fort. There were originally one to 3,000 showed up, but they left by the following morning. Uh, a lot of it was, most of the work was done by Negro laborers. Occasionally they tried to employ the militia to save a few bucks uh, to do the work, but they found the militia either too lazy or their work was ineffective. What constituted a fort? Essentially just um, earthworks. What they would do is they would dig out a uh, embankment, and that's pretty much what they did. Again, this was not supposed to be the grand... Um, you know, this is not, this is not going to be a grand thing. We're talking about erecting this in a matter of less than a week, just trying to put something together that if Confederates do come, to give, to give the militia a fighting chance, pretty much what it is. Were there regular troops assigned to it? Um, yes and no. There were very few. There were you know, more just detachments of probably not more than 200 regular troops. Um, I want to read something in your book here. You say the... You quote a, uh, a New Yorker, L.T. Hyde, saying, The Harrisburgers are a queer people. They walk around gaping at the fine-looking New Yorkers. They don't seem inclined to do anything for their own defense. And then uh, another person named Lockwood said, The residents of the capital itself appear listless. Hundreds of strong men in the prime of life loitered in the public thoroughfares and gaped at our passing columns as indifferently as if we had come as conquerors to take possession of the city they cravenly submitted to the yoke. Yeah, the, the Harrisburgers did not, uh, and the New, York, the New York militia did not have a good relationship. Uh, if you look at this, it's not something that just happened during the summer of 1863. It had extended back you know, before that. But there's accounts of uh, men, men in Harrisburg. What, what Harrisburg's uh, shopkeepers did is they, they, you know, they raised their prices up to triple, quadruple sometimes what was the norm in those days. And you know, there's accounts of the, a Harrisburger charging a soldier for a bucket of water and then the soldier taking his share and dumping it on the Harrisburger. Um, but it was not a good relationship. Uh, there were at times fist fights between the Harrisburg civilians and the New Yorkers. Um, so it was, 
a tense relationship. You also mentioned something about the toll on the bridge. There was a bridge across the Susquehanna. Yeah, the Camelback Bridges, which is now the Market Street Bridge, and the was owned by a group of private citizens of Harrisburg. It was a toll bridge. And they took careful note of every single soldier who passed across that bridge. And after the, after, uh, the invasion, they slapped the federal government with a $2,600 bill for um, defending their bridge. Was their actions considered unpatriotic or, or anything like that? I mean, frowned upon by, the, say, the state government, for example? There was never any official um, you know, reaction from the state government, as far as I've ever heard of. Um, I think this, there's a lot of accounts from soldiers. I think one, one Pennsylvania militiaman, uh, I'm trying to phrase, I believe he said, uh, this is abominable when referring to the bridge tolls. Um, but they, they, certainly, you know, they certainly expressed their disgust with them, uh, with the Harrisburg civilians. Now, you, you mentioned earlier about the, uh, the Yankee soldiers stealing things. That you said the locals around Oysters Point, and you'll talk about Oysters Point later, I'm sure, did not have favorable opinions of the Yankee militia. They turned out to be our worst enemies, wrote Whitehall resident Zacchaeus Bowman. They killed our hogs, chickens, and so on. So yes. they, they didn't, were not as friendly to the locals as the Confederates were. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. But by most accounts, the, the Confederates were very civil. They were you know, somewhat quiet and uh, reserved. But the New York militia, you know, they, they do complain a lot about how the citizens of Harrisburg were rude and impolite. Well, they were pretty, um, pretty barbaric in, on the west shore here. Uh, what was then was now Camp Hill, back then it was called Whitehall or Oysters Point, was pretty much the kind of the main defensive position outside of Fort Washington for Union troops. They would, they pretty much, um, Tore, tore the place apart, and it was really pillaged. And a lot of times, houses would be abandoned because people would, of course, ban um, uh, a lot of people departed for east of the river because that was uh, safe land. They didn't know what the, you know, they didn't know what the Confederates were going to do. They, they're reading uh, a lot of times twisted newspaper reports about how barbaric these Confederates are. You know, they, they don't know what the Confederates will do, and a lot of these houses are, are simply pillaged. Did you read a lot of newspaper reports preparing for this book? Um, some, but you have to be cautious because there's, you know, there's a newspaper report talking about a battle of Marysville. There was never a battle of Marysville. Um, so you have to be cautious with the newspaper reports. There's some, there's some you can use. Um, others are, a, a lot of other accounts there are. There's civilian accounts, of course, diaries, reminiscences, um, and all, also soldier accounts. But that's, you know, I try to, I, I try to only use accounts that are reliable, and sometimes newspaper accounts aren't the most reliable. Where do you find all those other documents? Well, there's a lot of great research places right around here. There's the uh, Dauphin County Historical Society, Cumberland County Historical Society, um, the Military History Institute at Carlisle Barracks. They have hundreds of thousands of Civil War letters and diaries there. Um, I've, I go there. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a regular there. Are they all copied now, or do you get to see the originals? Um, it, it's a little bit of both at the MH, at MHI. Um, there's some collections that are originals, and you can, you know, look through the originals. And others are copied because of, you know, they're either on, they're either been donated copies or they're bad condition. They make copies for viewing. How often, when you're doing your research, do you come across a eureka moment? A, a lot. Um, just, you know, it seems like every other day where I've been kind of thinking uh, this has to be. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten sources together and I'm saying, you know, so-and-so had to have been here on this date, and I find the source confirming that. 
you know, so there's, it's always those little things. And I've, I found plenty of stuff after I wrote this book that I wish, you know, I found like three photographs I wish I could have included if I uh, had known, <laughs> if I had found them. And when you're doing your research, how often do you have a whole day where you just accomplish nothing? Uh, not too often. Um, you know, there's always something I'll find or uh, so, some little thing to add. There are days that are, of course, better than others. And I read this is your fifth book? Yes, this is the, the, first, the first one that has been officially published, the fifth overall. What are the others? Um, the other four other ones are also focused on Harrisburg and the Civil War. Uh, this one was pretty much a compilation of those all together, bringing them all together. And you are how old? Uh, Fourteen. How did you get into writing Civil War books to the point that you have written your fifth book at age 14? Well, as you said, I, I went down to a uh, field trip on Gettysburg, and it was kind of then I started reading. Um, I started reading books. I started buying books on Gettysburg, and that's kind of when I started looking through endnotes and getting familiar with those kinds of sources. I, when I started out researching this area, I wasn't starting out to write a book. I was starting out to research for, as a hobby, um, you know, just for personal interest, because I was curious about know a little more about what happened here in the Harrisburg area. And then it kind of, you know, formulated into uh, compiling a bibliography and eventually uh, came into a book. Do you have a coach who teaches you how to write history books? Uh, no, but I do have a couple people who have certainly helped me. Um, Scott Mangus down in New York, he's an author, of course, wrote my foreword. He's been on this um, program. Yeah, he's, he's a great friend and he's really helped me throughout uh, uh, the writing process and research process. Did you figure out about endnotes and indexes and all that just by reading other books? Yeah, pretty much. I just, um, of course, there's a Chicago Manual of Style, which, you know, that's the official uh, version most publishers would prefer. But a lot of times you can just, you learn a lot just going through and looking at uh, other books. Do you have a hard time getting uh, other historians to take you seriously because you're 14 years old? Um, I used to. I think now that a book is nationally published, it doesn't seem to uh, take, take as long. Um, well, I've certainly had a lot of people who have supported me, and uh, like Scott Mangus, and you know, really uh, help, help me uh, get my name out there and my credibility. You said before we started this uh, taping that last night you spoke before a Civil War roundtable group. What's that like? Um, it's it's really nice because there's a lot of people who are all interested in the Civil in the Civil War, um, and they you know they certainly know they certainly know their stuff, and they um, are very interested and want to ask questions, and they really want to learn about it. Do they expect you to know everything in the Q&A session? Uh, kind of. <laughs> That's usually how it goes. How do you keep up on it? How do you, what do you learn? What do you read? I try to read. Uh, there's all, you know, there's, with the 150th anniversary, there's like 10,000 Civil War books coming out every month. So there's, there's plenty of new reading. And I, I think you really have to, to stay up in your subject. You kind of have to read and um, you know, keep, keep up with the subject. And even if it's not your own book or your own research, you still read other people's books because there's so much uh, you know, new stuff coming out. Do you have some favorite historians? Um, yes, I do. Uh, Scott Mingus, of course. That might be a little favoritism. Mm -hmm. um, Scott Hartwick, who's chief historian down in Gettysburg, he wrote a really good book. And a lot of times I like, uh, there's certain historians who write really well. Um, you know, the first book I ever really got was Harry Fonz's Culp's Hill, uh, Gettysburg Culp's Hill. And that's, that kind of uh, has a special place in my heart. But he's a very good historian, and uh, he's done so many books on Gettysburg. How often do you read a Civil War book and you think, that's not right? Not, not often. Um, you know, occasionally I'll scratch my head at something. Uh, and, you know, just this day I was reading a book, 
talking about snow in April, so I, I think that might have been a wrist print, but uh, you know, occasionally I, I scratch my head on a couple things like that. So um, th when you decided on this topic, you, you're interested in it because this is where you live? Yeah, that's really where I got my interest in, you know, obviously I'm interested in the Civil War, um, the Gettysburg Campaign, that's really, you know, hit home for me that how much happened in this area and really since 1960s hasn't been a thorough first, uh, uh, you know, first-hand primary source research on it. Is any of it preserved or has it all been built up? There's a few places. Um, for the most part, it's been built up. We're standing on part of the battlefield right now. Um, but like Fort Couch, that was a, uh, one of the many forts built on Bridgeport Heights to help uh, assist Fort Washington, which was built in the wrong place, evidently. And Fort Couch is publicly preserved. Uh, it's, just, it's an interesting story. Uh, Fort Washington was originally supposed to be preserved as a state park. Uh, an interesting thing is the governor at the time this was brought up in the legislature was Samuel Pennypacker, who was a veteran of the fort. So that never gains any traction. Uh, houses are built there, but Fort Couch is preserved by a local citizen who buys it himself, donates to the township, and the township decides they don't care about it. They turn it into a garbage dump. Literally, it's uh, actually used as garbage dump. And around the 1960s, it is revitalized, uh, refurbished, and in 2005, a monument was erected there. What do you see if you go there now? Um, there's a really nice granite monument uh, talking about the fortifications. And then, of course, the original fortifications are still there uh, in excellent condition. You can see how, how deep they are. You can really get an idea of, uh, you know, what, what obviously Fort Washington, really not, not much of it survives, but you can get an idea of what it was, uh, what it was like, because uh, both forts were very similar. How many people were stationed there when it was at its peak? We really don't know, because pretty much the most, the most accounts I've been able to find in my research, I have this in my book, uh, is that it was built by uh, some, some men of the 33rd Pennsylvania Militia and some Negro laborers. However, as far as how many men, judging from its size and its size only, I'd say probably anywhere from one to two hundred men. Um, th that's really all I can all I can say because there was you know, you're just so few accounts of Fort Couch itself. You know, it's just one of the things you have to judge from size. Then you mentioned Camp Curtin. What is that? Uh, Camp Curtin had been established in 1861, so long before the invasion, and that was the eventually becomes the largest training camp in the Civil War North. That it's about a mile, two miles, about a mile uh, north of Harrisburg proper, or what was then Harrisburg proper. Uh, now it's roughly um, Sixth, and, Sixth and McClay was the entrance to Camp Curtin. That's roughly where it is now uh, in uptown Harrisburg today. Now, when, when we left, left Lee's army, they had crossed over into Pennsylvania and met little resistance in Chambersburg or Shippensburg, and they approached Carlisle. What happens? So first of all, tell me about Carlisle. For people who are not familiar with it, what is it like now? Where is it? And what was it like in, in 1863? Well, Carlisle is a, uh, the county seat of Cumberland County, and it is also located right in the center of Cumberland County. Um, at the time of the Civil War, it had a at Carlisle Barracks, which is, of course, an important uh, army depot. And of, uh, of other note, there were many, many pre-war southern and northern generals who had graduated from the barracks, such as uh, I shouldn't say graduated, had served at the barracks. Fitzhugh Lee, who will later shell the town in 1863, who's a Confederate general, the nephew of Robert E. Lee. Um, Jeb Stewart had served there. Richard Ewell, uh, who was the Confederate Second Corps commander, had served two tours of duty there at Carlisle Barracks. So there were a number of uh, Union and Confederate generals who had served there. 
but Ewell, as he, as he approaches Carlisle, it will actually be his advanced cavalry under Brigadier General Albert Gallatin Jenkins, who entered the town first. The town has surrendered. Uh, there is a requisition for rations uh, from the town, and then Ewell's men will enter. Uh, Ewell's men will camp around the town. So, uh, one division will camp west of the town at Alexander Springs. The other, the other two divisions, kind of, the, other, the other division, I should say, uh, kind of spreads out about town. One camps on the uh, campus of Dickinson College, and the rest pretty much camp at Carlisle Barracks. Was a, f a formal surrender, a handover of the keys to the city, or something like that? It was more that the that General Jenkins pretty much um, used the force of that surrender the town, or we have you know cannons lined up outside the city. So that was really how it was done, and um, he, of course, re uh, re as, I, as I said, requisitioned, uh, I think it was 1,500 rations from the town, and then General Ewell will place a ridiculous requisition just because he wants to be able to go and have his uh, men search houses for food. Um, so that his men will, will search houses, but they behave very civil. Um, that's, that's one uh, thing many citizens of Carlisle are impressed by. You do say they got into the, uh, the town's liquor supply. Yes, they did. They get uh, uh, General Rhodes, who is one of Ewell's divisional commanders, actually gets drunk. Um, there's a number of men who uh, found, I think it was Rhodes and his staff found a keg of uh, lager beer, and they were uh, dr uh, drinking that. But you know, there's some controversy. Uh, some people have stemmed that General Rhodes' poor performance at Gettysburg was because he was hungover from Carlisle. I don't place too much credence on that, but um, there are some people who uh, have, have said that. And when was it they occupied Carlisle? Yule enters June 27th, and they are there from June 27th until the morning of June 30th. Yeah. So just the, the day before the start of the Battle of Gettysburg? Yes, is they, they depart Carlisle around, I think it's 4.30 on the morning of June 30th. How far is Carlisle from Gettysburg? Uh, I believe it's roughly 20, 25 miles. Did the armies move on foot the whole time? Pretty much, yeah. There, there were some rail transportation, of course, but not really in an active campaign theater because um, most of the time the Confederates would cut the railroad lines or the Union would cut the railroad lines. But for the most of the part, you know, for hardened Confederate veterans, they, I think it was Ewell's Corps, they were known as Jackson's Foot Cavalry because uh, Stonewall Jackson would make them, you know, he'd make them march all day and night if he wanted to, and they would listen because they, they just had such a respect for him. But, um, you know, Ewell's Corps, I believe, typically averaged around 20 miles per day if they needed to. Um, I believe it was um, the militia are, you know, they're more of city boys, city clerks a lot of times, or country boys who have never really walked more than 10 miles in their lives. You know, these are, they marched, uh, I think it's 13 miles to Carlisle from just west of Harrisburg to Carlisle, and it took them all day. And I believe one brigade, nearly lost uh, more than half its men, uh, stragglers, as they are going to Carlisle. Did the Confederates send scouting troops or spies on ahead to get the lay of the land? Yeah, there were spies, actually, reports of spies here in the Harrisburg area, which are very similar to when General Jenkins was approaching Chambersburg. So it kind of, you know, there were uh, strange, there was a strange woman who was near Chambersburg. She was dressed up in this well, odd manner and the citizens of Chambersburg always suspected her as a you know, man, a Confederate man dressed up uh, as a woman, as a spy. And the same thing occurs here, right here at Camp Hill uh, in Oysters Point. So, you know, very, very likely. 
Um, so there's, as I said, there was that uh, the strange woman. There's also men. There's a count of one man in a who had a Bowie knife, a uh, Bowie knife, I should say, um, who was walking around the Harris, walking around Oysters Point, um, asking details about the troops. Um, about, I think it's about ten days before the Confederates even got up here. There was a spy reported in Fort Washington, um, who's supposed to be. Who's, he's claimed he was from Clinton County. Was there any evidence of any Confederate soldiers who were spies crossing the Susquehanna? There is one account of a Confederate soldier, of a Confederate cavalryman, um, who is uh, sounding, or not sounding, I should say, he was um, traveling on a rowboat down Susquehanna. And this is, I, as I, I have that count in there. And my only explanation for it as a historian, it's one of those things that baffles me, um, kind of like a scientist in a Bigfoot. But um, re reality, the only explanation I can have for it is to the claims of the Union soldier who captured him. And this is not something the Union soldier made up. There are other accounts outside of his account. He, he left many accounts. But he was a member of Stewart's Black Horse Cavalry, which would make him Jeb Stewart's command. My only thought could be, because of the date it happened, that he, Jeb Stewart had sent scouts ahead before he reached Carlisle to shell it, and um, they were scouting the river uh, still preparing for an advance on Harrisburg. So that's really my only explanation for it. Um, I'm still kind of wary that uh, all, of all the details of it, but um, like, like I said, it's, it's difficult to, you know, say exactly how, if he was certainly a spy or not. You also mentioned um, on June 28th, you will send another reconnoitering party north towards Sterrett's Gap, which is on the Blue Mountain. Yeah, it's, it's pretty on, far north. Yeah, it's um, on the border of the Cumberland, uh, Perry Cumberland counties, and Yule's pretty, they're pretty much going through Carlisle Springs, and they, they get to the base of Sterrett's Gap, and they turn back after they're being they, they were told there were 50,000 Union militia on the Gap, which is you know more of just a trying to scare them away by a, a, a mayor of Carlisle Springs, and uh, I, I said they're probably about 100, 200, uh, if that. Is that the farthest north any Confederate soldiers got? Yes, that is the, uh, officially the farthest north any Confederate soldiers uh, or organized Confederate soldiers got. Of course, there were probably stragglers who, you know, left the army and went further north, or there's accounts of that. But this is a, as an organized, cohesive unit that is the farthest north any Confederate part of Robert Lee's army got. Can you define a couple of terms for me that you use in your sure. book? First of all, reconnoitering party. How many would that have been? How were they equipped? It varies. A uh, reconnoitering party, that, that one in particular was uh, said to have somewhere between 40 to 60 men. Um, so, the, you know, it's as I said, it's more various. Um, Stonewall Jackson's reconnoitering party, well, his deadly reconnoitering party, um, of course, the one that led to his death, they, I think they had about 18 men on that. So it was really more of just uh, a reconnoitering party is a kind of like a scouting party, essentially. How's that different from skirmishers? Uh, skirmishers are when you're in uh, a battle. Let's say you're formed battle. Let's say you're formed battle line, and you're going to send skirmishers out to feel out the enemy. A reconnoitering party is more of trying to scout and trying to see uh, where the enemy is. How should we attack him, or can we attack him here? And what are pickets? Pickets are essentially if let's say you're holding uh, one example, Fort Washington. Fort Washington had an extensive line of pickets. They would be down the hill. So if a soldier was trying to leave to go into uh, get drunk in Harrisburg, they would apprehend him. Or if Confederate, uh, you know, if Confederates were trying to, for example, here in Oysters Point, uh, there were one occasion where Confederate uh, s 
scouts had stumbled by accident during the night towards the Union line, and the picket line was what apprehended them and started a little flare-up. What are settlers? Um, settlers are pretty much, they're not, they're non-army. They, they kind of follow the army and try to sell, uh, sell things to the soldiers, because the soldiers are pretty often homesick and deprived of a lot of things. Uh, hard tack and um, some meat can get pretty old after uh, a while, especially for these militiamen. There was, there was uh, two settlers at Fort Washington and nearby Fort Washington in particular, and they will sell uh, food and drinks to the, the soldiers, often for uh, exorbitant prices, though. Now, what was life like for civilians? And was it possible to be a non-combatant as these different armies were moving through? Pretty much the advice of most Union soldiers was, um, in the Oysters Point area here in Camp Hill, was for the civilians to leave. There's, there's two prongs. Maybe they were thinking about their safety, but I think the mo most part of it was they wanted to get their homes and, uh, you know, be able to um, trash the homes. So, so the reality, the civilians, there, there was a two-pronged question because some civilians wanted to stay. They wanted to, you know, make sure their homes would be okay. Others were just in the air of safety and wanted to get across Susquehanna and put something between them and the fighting. So what would life have been like in occupied Carlisle? For, for Carlisle, it was, until the shelling of Carlisle, of course, it was, it was pretty safe and, um, you know, the Confederates were, as I said, the Confederates were very civil at Carlisle, and all the uh, accounts of Carlisle civilians typically uh, admonish about how um, you know, civil and you know, kind the, the, the Confederate soldiers were. And then the Confederate mar army moved on to Mechanicsburg. Did they leave soldiers behind, or did they just um, go on through? For Carlisle, actually what will happen is General Ewell's men will stay there. He actually sends forward General Jenkins' cavalry. So it's only the cavalry that reaches Mechanicsburg. Yule uh, will stay in Carlisle. I want to back up a minute. Carlisle, we talked about the Carlisle military barracks there, but there were no soldiers there when the Confederates arrived? I mean, they evacuated the Carlisle barracks? They evacuated, I believe it was two days before Yule arrived. They evacuated Carlisle. Because they were just outnumbered? Or? Well, there were about 200 men in that garrison. It was a post. And then, you know, Yule has roughly 15,000. It was more of just they were trying to abandon with all property they could salvage and, you know, get towards Harrisburg as fast as possible. And for people who are not familiar with Mechanicsburg, where is it? Mechanicsburg is essentially situated halfway between Carlisle and Harrisburg. Um, and that's a, a, 1863 that had 1,900 inhabitants. And that will be, as I said, General Jenkins will capture that town on the morning of June 28th. Any fighting? Um, there was a brief scrap outside of town with some Union militia. And it wasn't, it was more of just the Confederates pulled out a piece of artillery fired it, and the Union militia passed through town and, evac and uh, evacuated the town. You have a story about, is it Mechanicsburg where they insisted on taking the U.S. flag down and someone stuffed it under his seat on the horse? Yes, well, what will happen is the Union civilian, the uh, civilians in Mechanicsburg are convinced by some Union militiamen in the town to take down the, uh, t take down the Union flag that's flying, up the, uh, flying from the town and conceal it. So they conceal it in the Burgesses or the mayor's home. And what will happen is when the Confederates uh, want the town surrendered, they want the flag. So the mayor will give up the flag reluctantly. And as a Confederate soldier who is, uh, the, I guess, the flag of truce bearer, will put it, put it right under his uh, rump and ride away with it as a saddle seat. And the flags were a, a big symbol of pride. And you know, even today, it's you know, never let the flag touch the ground. 
Um, but that was really a, um, I want to say, an act of disrespect. Uh, obviously, it's war, but it was certainly something that um, had an effect on the Mechanicsburg civilians enough for them to be pretty mortified and enraged about it. So, did they raise the Confederate flag over Mechanicsburg? Yes, yes, they did. Um, I'm not sure they did in Carlisle Barracks. I'm not sure in the town of Carlisle, but they did do that in Mechanicsburg. How much of what was in Carlisle and Mechanicsburg in 1863 is there now that you can go look at? Um, for the most part, as far as of course they both expanded drastically, but the the main part of the town, Main Street, and you know, Mark, of course, High Street in Carlisle, a lot of you can see a lot of houses there, and even in Carlisle, you can see shell marks on some of the houses. They are still there, and they are still standing. So, so there are a number of houses in both. Obviously, not all. Uh, they've expanded drastically, but there's there are quite a few things in both that you can still go there and see that were uh, were there 150 years ago. So, did the, is it was it Jenkins' unit that made it to Mechanicsburg? Yes, it's Jenkins' cavalry. They roughly 1,200 uh, cavalrymen who make it to Mechanicsburg and will be the main menace of Harrisburg um, during uh, June 28th through June 30th. Was that the Battle of Sporting Hill? Uh, yeah, the Battle of Sporting Hill occurred June 30th. Um, what actually happens there is General Yule retires from Carlisle. He's ordered by Robert E. Lee to concentrate near Gettysburg, of course, and that's the Battle of Gettysburg. But he will forget behind, He will forget General Jenkins. He forgets to uh, either somehow orders got muddled or what, but General Jenkins is not notified. He does not learn that Yule has left Carlisle until around noon that day. But generally, General Couch and the Union, uh, the Union, Union uh, hierarchy in Harrisburg have scouts who have confirmed Ewell's departure, and they're able to send out a column to try to cut Jenkins off. Uh, luckily for Jenkins and the Confederacy, uh, it was, this column was commanded by uh, the NF John Ewan, uh, who he, he, he meant well, but he wasn't the best uh, commander. He had never seen a battle before, and he went to the Sporting Hill, which is roughly um, Sporting Hill and Carlisle Pike, where those roads intersect today. Um, Hamden Park and Hamden, uh, or Sporting Hill School is there now. It's now Hamden Township, of course. Um, but that's where the Battle of Sporting Hill occurs on June 30th. And that is the most significant of all the engagements in the, on the West Shore, uh, probably second to the shelling of Carlisle. How big a battle was it? It was still, uh, you know, most people would still call it a skirmish. But the Battle of Sporting Hill, um, it did produce 50 casualties. There were 11 Union troops wounded. There were roughly 20 to 30 Confederates wounded and 15 killed. Oh, you say in there that some of the, the Confederates who were killed were buried there on a local farm? Yes, they were buried probably by you know, the farm. But they were buried right, right near the uh, barn is still standing. The base of the barn is still standing. Um, it's all commonly called the McCormick Barn, but I've, uh, my research has proven that it's actually it was actually called the Moses Eberly Barn during the battle because it was owned by Everly. Um, so yeah, they would have been buried right, right across, uh, right now, I guess now the park end where it uh, is right next to uh, the barn. That's where they would have been buried. They were later reinterred. So no Union uh, fatalities? No Union fatalities at Sporting Hill. There was Union fatality during the shelling of Carlisle. We'll get to that in a minute, I guess. Now, that was, what was going on at Oyster? I learned from your book I always assumed that there's Oyster Mill Playhouse and Oyster Road here that it was named after shellfish that grew in, grew in <laughs> Susquehanna, but I am wrong. Can you correct me? 
Oysters Point was essentially, uh, obviously they don't connect now, but back in 1863, the Carlisle Pike and the Trindle Road met around 30th Street, 30th and Market in Camp Hill. Essentially where the, what we call the old giant building uh, here stands today. And that's where Oysters Point, it's a road fork, a fork in the road, it was called a point. Named after a family named um, Oyster. Yeah, the, the Oyster family had established the tavern in the early 18, 1800s, and that's how a point gets its name and the tavern gets its name is the Oysters Point Hotel. And essentially it was kind of what is now a modern day bed and breakfast. Uh, and that was demolished in the 1960s. But that was um, es essentially it was here during the battle and there, or not during the battle, but during the uh, operations in this area. And it was quite a focal point and uh, there's so many accounts of soldiers mentioning that in their uh, reminiscences and uh, diary accounts and letters. So the fighting never actually reached Oyster Point. It did in one oh, one did. case on June 29th. Uh, General Jenkins is trying to reconnoiter Harrisburg. He's, his mission in the uh, West Shore area is to report back to Ewell and Carlisle. Is Harrisburg takeable? So the Confederates assume so, but they want to make sure. So Jenkins needs to ride to Slate Hill, and Slate Hill is roughly uh, a little west of what is now New Cumberland. So Jenkins, as he he needs a diversion, so he has there won't be uh, any Union troops focusing on that area. So they will have Confederate, roughly 50 Confederate cavalrymen come down the Carlisle Pike, take a right, and come up towards Oysters Point on the Trindle Road. Uh, they'll scatter a couple hundred militiamen uh, who are scared for their lives and run east. And they will get as far as 28th Street, what is, what is now 28th Street. Back then it was Lime Kiln Lane. And 28th Street in Camp Hill is the, not the high water, some people call it the high water mark, but in reality what it is, is the closest the Confederates got to Harrisburg. You also, and we only have a few minutes left, so there's so much to cover, you, you talk about a, a place called the Peace Church, which one of the sides used to set up cannons, which is ironic. Yes, the Peace Church is here uh, in Camp Hill, and that was founded in 1798 as a place of peace, Die Friedenskirche, but now it is, during 1863, it has turned into a war zone and is actually the main position of General Jenkins' battle line. It is set up, uh, four cannons are set up there. Um, so the, the defenses of Harrisburg were never needed? Um, yeah, you could say that, yes, they were never needed, uh, nor, nor were they ever completed. They were very you know, rudimentary. But um, you know, they would have been needed had, had Robert e. had one day made the difference in the Battle of Harrisburg, essentially. Uh, had Robert E. Lee not ordered Ewell back to Gettysburg, which of course he needed him again to Gettysburg, but had Ewell pressed on to Harrisburg as planned on June 30th, I'm convinced Harrisburg would have been taken because the, the, the fences were flawed, militia was untrained, unprepared for the moment, and you know I can't imagine Stonewall Jackson's foot cavalry losing to, you know, the militia may have been uh, may have been behind fortifications, but the Confederates would have uh, been able to dislodge them, I'm sure. So the the Union won the Battle of Sporting Hill. Yes, that was essentially what it was. Was it was in some ways the rear guard action. Uh, Confederates were the Confederates were starting. Uh, General Jenkins starts to realize that he's uh, trying to be cut off. He soon realizes Ewell has left Carlisle. He somehow gets in his head the idea that General Couch's entire uh, department is coming after him. So he's kind of panicked. Uh, he sends forward a force of three, four hundred, rough, roughly three hundred, four hundred men to Sporting Hill. It's more of delaying action, and in, it, strategically, the Confederates won. 
because they were able to get away without being cut off and captured. But you know, the, they had a number of casualties, and technically the Union held the field, so victory is theirs. Um, but it was, certainly was mismanaged on the, on the, uh, the Union side, um, and the only reason it was a victory was superior numbers. Now, before we run out of time, you, you referred to the shelling of Carlisle, and when we last left it, the Confederates were in control in Carlisle. What happened? What happens is, as, I, as Ewell, Ewell leaves Carlisle for Gettysburg, General Jenkins um, retreats from Sporting Hill through Carlisle down to Gettysburg. So the Union troops under General William F. Baldy Smith will go, will continue west on the Carlisle Pike to Carlisle. They'll occupy the town. They receive a welcome reception. Uh, there's ladies and men of Carlisle have set up tables in the town square to receive them, food, drinks, etc. And all of a sudden, shells start bursting overhead. What has happened is Jeb Stewart and his Confederate cavalry, uh, early on in the campaign, he was ordered to go through the Union Army. Long story short, he went around the Union Army. So here's Lee's army, here's the Union Army, here's Stewart. So they're separated. So Stewart's coming up through York. And his plan, as far as he knows, the plan is he's supposed to meet with Ewell and Carlisle and continue on to Harrisburg. However, he doesn't realize that um, Ewell is not in Carlisle. He doesn't know what's happening. He realizes there's Union troops in Carlisle, so he starts shelling Carlisle. Did he take it upon himself to attack Carlisle? Pretty much, it was kind of one of those things that was necessity for him. He had, at this point, he was dangerously low on rations. He was dangerously low on ammunition. His men were literally sleepwalking. You know, they were literally, you know, they, they were just tired. They'd been riding nonstop for a uh, number of days. And they got very little sleep. So Stuart realized there was a, there was a need to get rest and get, uh, replenish his ammunition. So he was hoping that this militia force would simply surrender to him. And, he, and three times, he sends in a surrender request, and each time the answer is more decisive on the part of General Smith. Is that why he was late getting to Gettysburg? Uh, yeah, Stewart? so uh, that that's, can be Carlisle's claim to fame, but um, you know, it was it was one of the reasons. Again, when he comes to Carlisle, he doesn't know about Gettysburg. He still thinks it's Harrisburg. You know, he still thinks he's meeting up with Ewell and taking Harrisburg. So when he comes to Carlisle, he's just trying to uh, clear Carlisle of Union troops, and. I think it's about mid midway into the night of July 1st when he is shelling Carlisle that he finally realizes, uh, he finally gets word that Lee is at Gettysburg because he has sent couriers out on all the major roads trying to locate Lee. He can't. So that's when he finally locates him and, and early, that, early on the morning of July uh, 2nd, he will head, to, head for Gettysburg. If someone's watching this and they are curious about the, the areas where all this took place, where should they, where should they go? What, what should they go and look at? I think the best place to start is Fort Couch, and that is, of course, in what is, was then called Bridgeport. Now it's called Lemoyne, and it's, it's public property. You're welcome to go on it. It's uh, the township of Lemoyne, and there's the Fort, Fort Couch Monument, which is also very, uh, very interesting. Um, in general, there's a, a lot of places in this area. My book isn't a tour guide, but you can kind of, I do in parentheses point out a couple present day locations such as present, you know, this lane, present day 30th Street Market uh, in Camp Hill. So, you know, you can kind of get an idea of what it was like. Um, there, are number, there are a number of places in Carlisle. The old courthouse still has shell marks on its columns pretty clearly uh, from the shelling. So there are a number of places in the area you can still go and see uh, what happened 150 years ago.
In your research, did you come across something where you, you desperately wish you could have talked to the person who wrote it to ask them something about it? Yeah, there's so many cases. I'm, I can't think of anything in particular right now, but there's so many cases where I'm trying to understand or interpret what a soldier says. They're just, you know, scribbling it away. A lot of times I can't read something. I'm trying to read, uh, you know, which regiment was at this place, and I can't read the number because, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't, a lot of these soldiers weren't that literate, and they, a lot of them didn't, you know, you know, they, you know, there were common spelling errors, and uh, it's sometimes hard. There's some soldiers who have beautiful penmanship, others, um, it's hard to read. So, you know, there's a lot of times where I also wish I could, uh, you know, talk to a veteran who left a account and just ask him a few more things, but um, not, not, uh, not possible. Are there times where you actually hold somebody's actual diary in your hands? Yeah, that's one of the great things of uh, MHI in Carlisle because MHI is what? Uh, Military History Institute's at Carlisle Barracks. Um, that's a great thing there because you can really, you know, there's letters there that you can sit there and you can look at, you can read, you can hold the originals uh, from 150 years ago and get an idea of what these men went through, what these men experienced. And for people who have, may have missed this part of the program, you are 14 years old? Yep. What are your plans? Well, I'd like to continue history, of course, and uh, you know, continue history and major in history in college and uh, see where I go from there. Now, what year of school are you in right now? I'm currently in ninth grade. So you have three more years of high school, or do you think you might graduate early and go um, to college early? It, it, will, it will depend, because I'm, I'm pretty hung up with history, right, uh, history work on the side right now, so I may be able to graduate early, I may not, and um, I, that's something I'm, st I'm still working on. And you were homeschooled? Uh, yes. Do you also study science and math and all those other things? Oh, oh yes, of course I do. Um, it's actually a cyber school, so that's how it kind of, um, you know, it, it's still state standards and everything like that. Um, are you working on any other books? Yes, I have two that are uh, slated to be coming out this uh, coming spring. Uh, one is coming out this April called Emergency Men. It talks about the 26 Pennsylvania militia, and they fought uh, one of the hastily raised militia units. They fought at Gettysburg four days before the battle. And the other one will be, again, on Harrisburg, Harrisburg in the Civil War. And this one focuses on the entire war, the civilian war effort, uh, Camp Curtin. Uh, so that will be, and that will actually be coming out through this same publisher, this History, is History Press. This History Press, the, the, both books or the, the one on Harrisburg? Uh, both books on Harrisburg will be coming out through History Press. Well, we hope you'll come back when those books come out. Sure. We've been speaking with Cooper Wingert. He is the author of this book, The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.